HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With me, your host, Zara Tangora, and my wonderful mother, Bobby Conforto, who is not with us for the intro, but as always, joins us for the episode. And what an amazing episode we have for you today. We are joined today for a midsummer's episode. We have obviously been on a bit of a break for a while. Um, and don't worry, we'll have more episodes for you coming this fall. Um, but today, yes, a midsummer's episode with writer Laura Davis. Uh, Laura is the author of seven nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages and sold more than 1.8 million copies. In her new book, The Burning Light of Two Stars, Laura examines the endurance of mother-daughter love, how memory protects and betrays us, and the determination it takes to fulfill a promise when ghosts from the past come knocking. Um, Laura also teaches some wonderful online uh, classes, and she does in-person retreats, both domestic and international, which is so cool. I'm personally very interested in taking one of these as an aspiring writer myself. Um, and you can find this information and how to be a part of these uh, retreats and online classes at www.lauradavis.net, and we have that link in our show notes. Um, so yeah, this was just such a great episode and it was wonderful to come back to the show with such a prolific writer and someone who's such a force, um, in their field. So without any further ado, we bring you our beautiful conversation with Laura Davis. Um, and as always take care of yourselves and each other. Bye. Welcome to Processing. It has been a while and we have an amazing, amazing episode today with a wonderful guest. We are so excited to have her here on the show. Today's guest is Laura Davis. And Laura, hello. Hi. Wonderful to be with you. Um, Hi, Laura. Laura is the author of seven nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages, oh my gosh, and sold more than 1.8 million copies. Uh, Laura teaches writing online, in person, in domestic and international retreats. In her new book, uh, The Burning Light of Two Stars, Laura examines the endurance of mother-daughter love, how memories protect and betray us, and the determination it takes to fulfill a promise when ghosts from the past come knocking. Laura, hello. Hello. It's, been, it's wonderful to be here. I'm so intrigued by your show. Oh, thank you uh, so much. It's a great concept. I love when people put things together that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate and create something new from it. Oh, thank you for saying that. And, you know, we definitely have something in common, which we're going to get to later in the show, which is writing about food and grief. And in the show, talking about food and grief. And, you know, we have always looked at this as a way, uh, 
as talking, you know, getting to the grief with food as a way to kind of destigmatize the conversation around grief and break down some of the barriers that people might have when getting into these conversations. So it's wonderful that I know we share the love of food and the talking about it and uh, the writing about it. I'm a writer also. And so we definitely share that. And it's very exciting to have you with us today. Um, I wanted to kind of open up with something from your new book, which will get us right into that food space. Um, in your new book, you mentioned a couple of dishes and foods that were really important to you and, uh, you know, prominent growing up. You mentioned veal scallopini, hot dogs, bean casserole, Pepsi, and applesauce, which uh, applesauce is an interesting meaning in your family. And I just wonder if you can kind of maybe unpack where some of these foods come from and when kind of what they meant to you in your story. Yeah, well, veal scallopini is like, it, it's like one of these foods that in my life went extinct a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually did just eat a little bit of veal. I was in Tuscany leading a writing retreat and they served veal one day and it was just kind of like everyone was like, oh my God, veal. You know, yeah. Baby, we wanted to go, you know, woo, woo, like I know. Cows. So my mother used to make that. It was one of my favorite dishes. I think it had like um, veal that she would uh, dredge in flour with some spices and then had white wine and mushrooms. And then we yeah. used to have like bread that we would dip in the sauce. I remember that. So that oh. was a food that was like a regular you know, probably once a month or once every couple of weeks, my mother would make that. It was in her, her rotation of, I, this was in like the late 50s and 60s. And this was like one of the foods that was, you know, that, and we had stuffed cabbage, we call uh, hiding meat. Um, oh my God, hiding meat. I hiding love meat. that. Yeah, I remember putting the little toothpicks through the, that was my job as a little girl to stand on this little step stool and have the colored toothpicks and weave them in to hold the cabbage balls together and um and a lot of baking too so okay there was the veal scallopini there was applesauce was um when I was little once a month we would go to my grandparents house my mother's parents who were um Jewish immigrants who lived on the Lower East Side in Manhattan um they barely spoke English um and there were no like books or anything in their house they, they lived in a tenement on Avenue D and um, that place was really significant because my grandfather actually sexually abused me as a child. And it happened mm. in that apartment. Mm. And uh, we would have dinner there. Um, and my grandmother always cooked. He was a kosher butcher. So even wow. though they were very poor, we had steak every time we ate with them. Mm. And, and then they would serve Pepsi because they were kosher. And mm -hmm. we, my my mother, um, my parents were both Jewish, but not religious. My my father was really an atheist. And right. my mother, you know, she never kept kosher like her mother and father had. And she always felt guilty about it. And so when we went there and they had a kosher home, we had to obey all these like weird rules that we weren't familiar with. And one was that you could not have milk and meat in the same meal. So right. we got soda. I think there were like these brown speckled glasses with ice cubes and then it was so exciting to have soda because my family did not believe in soda yeah mm -hmm. that's where the pepsi came in and then we would have dessert and whatever dessert it was i don't remember the desserts my grandfather called it applesauce that's it amazing applesauce no matter that's amazing it, it was still applesauce that's amazing it reminds me of how uh you know in england they tend to call any dessert a pudding Right. And it's so confusing. I'm like, gosh, you guys eat so much pudding. And there really was one other food on that list. What was the other one? Uh, beans. Oh, be hot dog. Hot yeah, dog that was my casserole. favorite dinner as a child was my mother would buy a package of like eight or 10, I think like, I can't remember the brand, the brands then, but hot dogs in a plastic package and then cut up the hot dogs in little rings, put them in a Pyrex dish pour in a big can of Heinz vegetarian baked beans. And then she would add molasses. Um, she sometimes relish, but I, I really didn't like that. And maybe a little bit of mustard mm -hmm. and a little bit of water. Uh, and then she would bake it in the oven at 350 for probably 20, 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then she would put it under the broiler at the end. So that the oh, crystallized molasses. A little bit crispy. And, I, I, and then we would have like, we, she would never get Wonder Bread, but we would have some, she believed in good bread. We'd have some kind of good bread from the bakery. And then you would use that to to, to like run it in the sauce. 
And the thing that's interesting is that when my when I had children, I tried to make this for them because I thought it was like the <laughs> ultimate comfort food. <laughs> right. People use like turkey hot dogs. They hated it. <laughs> really? That is <laughs> it, it very interesting. It did not go down through the generations. <laughs> well, you know, I always think of food uh, as these trail markers kind of in our lives, right? And like the things that have happened to us, good, bad, traumatic, oftentimes are signified by like what we were eating because that's this kind of sensory little trail post that we can kind of link to. And when you're talking about the you know early childhood trauma that you had and abuse um, by your grandfather, I'm interested to kind of hear how like the food element of that stuck out in your mind. And are these foods that you feel uh, or have ever felt are hard to to enjoy again? Or did that have any kind of, you know, significance as a trail marker for you in, in terms of this experience? I don't think I've ever had trouble eating a food because I had some experience mm. of trauma or difficulty around it. Um, mm. There's certain foods, I was super picky as a child. So there were a lot of foods I didn't like you know, and I, I had a very sensitive palate, I guess. Um, but I think more like when I was trying to, as a writer, when I was trying to recreate that scene of what happened in that apartment, um, remembering the food helped bring me right back into the moment. And it, it mm -hmm. sort of, it was a lens through which a lot of the other sensory detail started coming back. Like I remembered that they had a tiny bathroom and there were these I guess it was steam heat mm -hmm. and there were these pipes that were super hot and you could burn yourself on. And I did burn myself on those pipes because you could barely turn around in this tiny bathroom. And then I started remembering that my, my grandmother would cook in this tiny little galley kitchen, like broiling the steak. And she always made potato latkes too, when we came ah. and he would be yelling at her and berating her in mm -hmm. Yiddish, like mm -hmm. she never did anything right. And mm -hmm. I have such a vivid memory of that. And my family does not, um, validate that memory. Um, the other thing that he used to do, it, it's interesting, I was talking about this yesterday, that my family denies that there was any sexual abuse. I mean, this for like 30, you know, oh. decades and decades, they've, they've denied that it was ever there. But my grandfather used to, uh, when the girls reached puberty, there was a ritual that everyone acknowledged and will acknowledge to this day where the girls had to come and lift their shirt and show him their developing breasts. And everyone would laugh. I mean, this is really, wow. and, and yet this is a family that says that there couldn't have been any sexual mm. abuse. I mean, that was an innocent thing. You right. know, so How we believe, we believe our own lies. I was reading that chapter this morning in your book, yeah. um, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And I was, you, your mother was commenting, it's okay. Don't be upset about it. It's no big deal. We've always done this. We've done this since we were little. Come on, Lori, don't be difficult. We all right. did it. Exactly. Right. She was yep. describing that they did it for in her when she was young, too. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, that adds just a whole nother layer. Not only are you experiencing this like abuse and trauma, but then being told not to a be difficult and then having the entire experience completely invalidated. How did you find a way to not only deal with the like the abuse, but really like how did you find a way to deal with and cope with the invalidation of the things that you experienced? Well, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. I, you know, the, the memoir is about my relationship with my mother and one of the qualities, I mean, she had some very good qualities, I have to say, including that we love cooking together and mm -hmm. we love like putting on parties together. And mm -hmm. a lot of my love of the kitchen and my being a really good cook came from her. Um, but one of her difficult qualities was she was always gaslighting me, which basically was, you know, what you are saying didn't happen. Um, I know you better than you know yourself. This is your experience. This is what you're feeling. You're not feeling what you think you're feeling. I know you better than you know yourself. Mm -hmm. So it took me decades to learn to trust my own gut to even though I had like an inner voice to identify my own feelings and to stand up for the truth. Um, because, you know, a parent is such an incredibly powerful influence and we want to do anything to be loved and be accepted. So it took a very long time uh, for me to, 
And and one of the things I did, which many children do, is I buried like the sexual abuse. I buried that experience and and didn't remember it again until I was twenty seven years old. Hmm. Um, and, you know, so profound I'm, that concept that to be something to be in the back of your recesses of your mind and just not. But did you notice it in other ways? Did you notice it in your body? Were there any experiences growing up that you would remember it? Well, I think I was pretty split as a child. You know, mm. I was um, I was a straight A student. I was a, such a good girl. I was always high performing. I, you know, achievement was really overly valued in my family and doing. That was my mother's model was she was an incredible doer. And I'm still you know, at 67 years old, really trying to undo the curse of being so <laughs> driven to do and mm-hmm. create and generate. And uh, I really, I'm still struggling to learn how to relax and how to just, how to be. I mean, I hate, it sounds like a stereotype, but, you know, I think we we have the imprint of the people who shaped us, both mm-hmm. their good qualities and their exactly. negative qualities. And Absolutely. I think I used to believe healing was, um, much more absolute than I do now. I, I feel like it's very complex and there are some things that we really get over and change and some things we just learn to live with mm-hmm. and adapt to. And I, I think that's one of them. So it, it took me a really long time. And, but when I did finally stand up for myself, you know, I did it in the hugest way possible, which was by publishing a book about healing <laughs> from sexual abuse that mm-hmm became an incredible bestseller. It mm-hmm. broke all kinds of ground in the field. My family was horrified and, you know, felt like I was spreading lies on national TV. And mm. it took many, many years for us to find peace with each other, you know, and then, and I'm, I'm very grateful that it did happen, but we had to really learn how to agree to disagree about these very core issues. I ha- finally had to realize that you know, my mother and her side of the family were never going to validate my experience. And she had to realize I was never going to recant. And we had to start thinking, how is there a basis to connect if this huge, basically turd is sitting in the middle between yeah. us? And, you know, one of the ways we did connect was around food. Yes. Because that had always been a positive aspect of our relationship. And um, so we started to build new connections based on things we enjoyed. Food was one, playing cards, little things, you know, going mm-hmm. to movies, going right. to the theater. Um, you know, she was very motivated by having grandchildren. Mm. Um, Laura, uh, tell us a little bit about some of, so one of the ways you reconnected, you're saying is through food. How, how so with your mom? What were some of the things that you guys did to reconnect through food? Was it cooking together? Was it sharing meals out? What were some of the things that, you know, specific foods that you guys kind of were able to do this around? It was cooking together. And also, um, I remember calling her. I, I, one of the th- ways I coped with my child was I moved 3,000 miles away. So mm. my mother was <laughs> in New Jersey. I settled in California, like as mm. far as I could go without crossing an ocean. But I do remember if I needed that kind of buffer in order to have any kind of relationship with her, uh, which is why at the end of her life, when she moved to my town, it was, which is what this book is about, you know, was so difficult for me. Um, But I remember I would call her and just ask for a recipe, you know, Mm. so it'd be like, mom, could you tell me again how to make your brisket? You know, it was usually these, these foods that had a lot of kind of spiritual, emotional, cultural, cultural, yeah memories, you know. Um, and yeah, I would call to ask her how to bake certain things. And I had, I have, um, I used to make, I, I still make rugelach, which is this little rolled Jewish oh, cookie. Yeah. And I have still the, the original card. It's like a little index mm-hmm. card with her mm-hmm. recipe written in ballpoint ink, probably like a Bic pen. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like browned around the edges and the writing is smeared with from drops of, you know, probably yeast water. Yeah, right. I love having that card and I have other recipes written in her hand. So I think a lot of it was honoring this legacy of these recipes. And I, we also, when when we were together, we also did enjoy cooking together, you know, and she would always, uh, I would always for years, I would bring my children to visit once a year across the country. And those visits often were incredibly difficult. They'd usually fall apart after Mm -hmm. 24, 48 hours. Uh, But I felt like I wanted her, to have a relationship with her grandkids, mm. but she would always have prepared a whole refrigerator full of foods she knew I loved. 
Mm. So it, was a, it was a real way she showed love, and it's the real way I show love as well. Exactly. You know, I wanted to go back just a little bit. I know that your history started with trauma at your birth, and I wonder, I think that's an important thing to bring up in the, in the concept of grief and loss. And um, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was, uh, my mother, before I, my, I have an older brother who's about five years older, and then my mother had two late miscarriages. Like, I think at like six or seven months, she, I mean, really traumatic for her. Mm. And then she got pregnant again with me. And when I was, when she was seven months pregnant with me, she, um, I don't know if she started bleeding, but anyway, she, she went into labor. She went to the hospital. She was completely convinced she was losing a third baby. And instead, I was born very premature. Um, at that point, I was I was I went down to two pounds twelve ounces, and mm. at that time, that was very unusual yeah. uh, for a baby that size to live. And after I was born, uh, the doctor said, "Hold on, Mrs. Davis, there's another one coming." Oh wow! And I had an identical twin sister that no one knew about mm. because they didn't do ultrasounds or anything. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Days. And so this other baby was born who was smaller than me and she died after 24 hours. And, you know, one of the most, the th- one of the things I, I love the most about my mother and appreciate the most is that they kind of, I think they almost, I had this idea that they put her in the toilet or they just threw her away. And my father didn't relate to this baby, other baby at all, because, you know, he was a man. <laughs> and yeah. And also everyone was just like, love the child you have, you know, and I was struggling for life. And Mm -hmm. my mother insisted on naming her. And she gave her the name Vicky. And I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful that she named her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I've gone through my life, and I I look back, you know, I, I, yes, I was sexually abused. Yes, I had this mother who was like, incredibly narcissistic and difficult, really hard things, but absolutely, I think that birth trauma of losing my twin sister has had the most significant impact mm. on my whole life. Mm. And I, I feel like I have had a relationship with her, mm. this dead twin, my whole life. And it's almost mm. like she's like a guardian angel mm. looking out for, for me. And at certain points, I've um, psychically, I guess, you know, really tried to communicate with her or just feel her presence and I've often thought what well, how my life would be different if it hadn't been if I hadn't been born into that incredible loss of the person like I, I feel like I you know I I'm got in a 30 plus year marriage. I have three children, I have three grandchildren, and I and really good friends over decades. And I feel like no one will ever be as close to me mm. as that lost sister. Like oh. to, you know, to grow in the womb with someone. And I, I've always been fascinated with twins and mm. always have thought what my life would be like. And there's a certain deep loneliness and a feeling of sometimes like floating around in the universe, like a little speck of dust. There's a, there's a way that I have, um, it's just such a primal wound. Yeah. So you both felt her and missed her at the same time. Yeah. And felt also her presence and missed her at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And my mother was the only person throughout my life who ever talked about her. Right. Mm. And she would tell me the story of having had a twin. And even when she had dementia, at the end of her life, we had a really poignant conversation about my twin sister. Like it was one of the days that she rose out of her dementia and was lucid. And mm. we talked about Vicky and and she said, I always wondered how that would affect you. It just was like, you know, I, people are so complex and, and there's so many ways that I hated my mother for a long time and then so many things I'm deeply appreciative about and that is one of them I felt like it was an incredible gift that she and I shared that grief Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I mean that's the thing about close relationships especially you know parental relationships which are ones that in many ways you can't I mean you certainly can run from or or cut them out but it's very hard to right and finding that commonality, that like little part, that the little crack that can get in so that you can feel this very kind of necessary love is so important. And, and people are very complicated and very strange and can really hurt your parents can hurt you so much. And it is oftentimes a real struggle to find those cracks, to let them in. And it, but it feels good. And, you know, I was actually just writing something about my father 
who passed away, who was a very complicated person who could be very mean and very alienating. And I had a lot of problems with, but, um, I adored him and loved him and he was so bizarre. And I was just kind of coming around to this thought in this chapter, I was writing about him for my book about how part of realizing that I could love my father, even though he was such a bizarre person who was so complicated and hurt me so much, gave me this little kind of bit of faith that I can also be that, right? That I can also be loved despite all of my weird things and things, mistakes that I've made, you know? Um, And that actually is one of the most important things that I personally took from being able to love my father despite Mm. his incredible shortcomings and be so just obsessed with him as a person and his good qualities Mm. and the relationship I have with him after his death. Really like a big kind of takeaway, and this was a kind of an aha moment for me in writing this, was that wow, like I can, I can also be that. I don't have, I also don't have to be completely perfect for someone to Mm -hmm. remember me this way, you know? Well, it reminds me of the Leonard Cohen quote, there is a crack, there is a crack in everything. That's where the light comes through. You know, that's just, that's so true. That's beautiful. Um, So, you know, just to pivot a little bit, Laura, one of the ways in which you know, you've been able, you've mentioned you've been able to process your grief and it's obvious as a writer, uh, has been through writing, but more, uh, acutely, we were talking about food writing and food writing workshops and how you've taken, you know, your love of food and the connection with your mother, uh, and the kind of healing around that, right. And translated into food writing and how you've helped other people do that, which is fascinating because obviously this is a show where we handle food and grief. i I'm a writer. As I mentioned, I love writing about food and grief connected. And I think it's a wonderful, disarming way to be able to do that. And and I know this is something you've helped other people be able to do. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of your food writing workshops and your own food writing work? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've been, you know, basically an entrepreneurial writing teacher for over 20 years. And so I'm always creating my own, you know, workshops, classes, retreats, international trips, things like that. And I I am someone who likes variety, so I don't like to just do the same thing all the time. And so, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I don't remember how long, um, I had a student who was a chef, and she had a really incredible um, commercial kitchen in her house. And she and I cooked up this idea of doing a day-long food workshop. I think it was called Writing for Foodies, something like that. And I think we limited it to maybe 14 people or a dozen people. And uh, everyone, what the instructions were, people had to bring a dish that had a story attached to it. So there was Mm going to be a potluck dinner and they would bring, and it had to be like mostly cooked or mostly prepared, but they would have another hour to work on their dish. So everyone would come and they'd, you know, put all their food in this kitchen. And then we would sit down and I would start, I would give a little introduction about how we were going to write and, you know, some basic ground rules. And then we would start writing. And I think people thought, you know, writing about food, it's going to be really fun. And it would, we would, you know, I would, might do something like, you know, write an ode to your favorite ingredient um, or, you know, um, tell me about your favorite condiment or tell me about something you were scared to eat or what's the most unusual food you have ever eaten. But then I would also, you know, um, say things like, um, tell me about a time you fed someone or Mm. tell me about all the kinds of hunger you have ever known. Wow. You know, um, and, 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 um, tell me about a forbidden food. Um, you know, um, these are amazing prompts. Tell me about a food you eat for comfort. Tell me about a food you had to spit out. Um, so, you know, these kind of prompts suddenly, people were writing about not just food, but scarcity, hunger, connection, family. One of my favorite prompts is tell the story of your family from the point of view of the kitchen table. Mm -hmm. I love having people write write about objects or from the point of view of objects because the table witnesses everything and could tell everything without the barriers that the writer might feel themselves about putting things down. And those are often the most revealing stories. 
Mm-hmm. So people would come to these retreats and they would be writing about like the most deep core issues and a lot of grief would come mm-hmm. up. Um, and then, you know, we would do that all afternoon and then everyone would have an hour to, you know, prepare their food. Then we would have this mm-hmm. amazing feast. And then the last prompt in the evening would be, tell me the story of the food you brought today. Mm-hmm. They were so much, they were, those retreats were so That's much beautiful. fun. I did it for a number of years. And then what happened was first the woman who had the kitchen moved away. But (laughs) I I had cancer and then I, there were so many foods I couldn't eat. And then everyone started being like vegan or gluten free. (laughs) Suddenly it was like, it was not fun anymore. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, (laughs) you know, you uh, had mentioned that you have a piece that um, you would like to read to us today that, uh, is about food and we would love it if you would share it with us and our listeners, since we're talking about food writing, that'd be amazing. Great. So this is, um, this is a, this is one of the foods that I have a story about, you know, um, and it's called Temmie's brisket. And, mm. you know, I said before I, I got her, her, my, her name, my mother's name was Temmy, Temmy Davis. Um, and this was a story of, you know, this food I learned to make from her. I want to tell you about my mother's brisket because she doesn't make it anymore. She will never make it again, I am pretty sure. No, I am positive that her brisket making days are over. First, you go to the butcher shop. You buy a piece of brisket. You don't want one that is completely trimmed with all the fat taken off, although you might be tempted to because fat is gross and bad for you, right? Besides, who wants to pay $12.99 a pound if you're lucky? for a slab of fat. But this is where you would make a critical mistake. Some foods, and brisket is one of them, don't lend themselves to healthy eating and never will. The fat, my mother taught me, is essential because it's the fat that makes the meat tender. As the meat cooks, it will gradually absorb most of the fat, and that is where the flavor comes from. So tell the butcher you want the brisket trimmed, lean on one side, but with at least a quarter inch of fat, maybe more, all the way across the other side, like a vast, clammy, white sea stretching to the horizon. I don't think my mother goes to the butcher shop anymore. She barely goes to the market. And when she does, she gets a small old lady bag of groceries. Some of them are healthy, but many of them are foods she shouldn't eat, like dry cereal and raisins. It's bad for someone with diabetes to eat cereal and raisins for breakfast, because where's the protein? but my mother can't remember that. The habit of eating low-fat breakfast is too entrenched to break. No matter how many times I tell her about her diabetes or the diabetes nurse tells her or Dr. Eisendorf tells her she's incapable of remembering. Most of the time, she doesn't even remember she has diabetes or she just doesn't believe it. She thinks all her ailments are made up by doctors just to bilk Medicare out of more money. When you get home with your brisket, cut slots all over both sides with a sharp knife and insert small cut up fresh pieces of peeled garlic and ginger root. Mm. Marinate in a large pot in a mixture of several bottles of cheap red wine and some soy sauce. I use four parts cheap red wine to one part soy sauce. Make sure the meat is covered completely. Put in a refrigerator overnight. My mother insists she could cook for herself perfectly well that she is perfectly capable of living alone. I have fired Fiona, her caregiver, because my mother hates her and hates having someone living in her home. She treats Fiona like a servant or worse, and seeing the way she treats another human being as not a human being has made it harder and harder for me to love my mother. The next morning, preheat your oven to 325 degrees. You have to lower the rack to make room for the big pot and lid you'll soon be putting in the oven. Lift the brisket out of the marinating juice and save the juice for later. Dredge the meat in a mixture of flour and spices. I love that word, dredge. It means to take each side of the soaked meat and lay it in a flat tray containing white flour, garlic powder, salt, and pepper until each side is coated in white. Then you sear the meat, cooking each side in a large flat skillet until it is browned. You do this on medium heat at least, if not higher, watching it all the time. 
Put a bit of oil in the pan if you need to, but just a little. You are quickly cooking only the outside of the meat, sealing in the flavors. I'm not really sure why this is done, but since my mother taught me to do it, I do it too. My mother insists she was never a good cook, but I have fond memories of her hiding meat, veal scallopini, spaghetti and meatballs, all day spaghetti sauce, eggplant parmesan, lasagna, and lots of other 1960s housewife delicacies she created every night. When she traveled to Spain, my mother came home toting a paella pan and some saffron. When I went to Bali recently, I came home with saffron, fresh vanilla beans, and a wooden coconut grater. After the meat has been seared on all sides, put it in a large oven-proof casserole with thick sides and a lid. Put a couple of cut-up onions and pour a packet of Lipton French onion soup mixed over the top. Pour the marinating liquid back in. It should still cover the meat. Put it in the oven covered and bake for three or four hours. You want it to become so soft it could be torn apart in strands with a fork. One mistake a lot of people make at this point is to throw in the potatoes and carrots, but don't. They will only become soggy and overwhelmed by the wine soy sauce marinade. My mother taught me to cook the potatoes and carrots separately, baking them in the oven in a single layer with a drizzle of olive oil on top until they're almost completely cooked but still intact. They should be crispy on the outside and tender and soft on the inside. These get added at the very end on the serving platter with some gravy spooned on the top. The gravy you see is mellowed with all those hours of cooking and no longer has the sharp, unmelded flavors it had in the beginning. You have to be patient to be, make brisket, and you have to plan ahead. Unfortunately, these are two things my mother could no longer do, be patient or plan ahead. It is impossible to plan ahead when you can't remember what happened to you five or 10 minutes earlier. It is impossible to be pa patient when you were 84 and have dementia, and your life is slipping irrevocably out of your control, and you are moving towards death and the loss of everything that has made you you. You are losing your mind, and you are terrified. But instead of ever acknowledging you are terrified, you hold on for dear life to any shred of control over your life you can hold, and you resent the hell out of your children who are trying to take over everything. <laughs> so patience is out of the question. You have to wait till the brisket gets really soft. At least that's the way I like it. My mother used to cook it far less, so it was still firm and sliceable, and then she'd warm it up later in the gravy. And to be honest, I loved her brisket, but I will never get to eat it again. And so I will pass the recipe on to my daughter and son, who both like to cook. And I will pray that if I live to be 84 and cancer doesn't kill me first, that I will find the grace and acceptance my mother does not have. But who am I to think that my old age, should I be blessed or cursed to have one, will be any different? My children might be cursing me just the way I am cursing her. They might be loving me with strings attached, one of them being obligation and another pity and another pure blinding love, just the way I love her. Oh, that is so beautiful, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was really gorgeous. And one of like the you know big thoughts I had during it is that like, I think a lot of times in intimate relationships, particularly the parent-child relationship, when there's a lot of pain, um, is that we need to see them in like black and white, right? Like this was really bad or they were really great. And like, I think thinking of things that they were good at or that we loved about them and just these pure memories, things they made that were delicious is like the gray area in between. And gray is good, mm -hmm. I think, you know? I think it's this kind of real space, I think, rather than just these two poles, which we feel compelled to try to live between because mm -hmm. one of either one of them feels satisfying. And there's something so beautiful about what you said about this, this piece that you wrote that really makes me feel that kind of just living in the like, just a pure memory of something they did that was good. Yeah, when I work with um, memoir writing students, and especially if, if they're writing about an antagonist, you know, someone in their life who was negative or, you know, hostile or is kind of the villain of the story, I always have them do a, an exercise, which they often resist, is to write a scene 
showing that person doing something they deeply loved. Mm -hmm. You know, so that you get to see the complexity of that human being. They're not just cast as evil. And it, it really changes the dynamic when you can write about every character as a full-bodied, three-dimensional human being. And that's often a challenge for memoir students. You know, I had to, it took me 10 years to write my book because I had to move from thinking of myself as the hero and my mother as the villain, which I never mm -hmm. wanted. Mm -hmm. But it took me a long time to actually be able to write it in a way that I showed my own underbelly and my own failings mm. and showed her strengths. Mm -hmm. um, so that that I finally knew it was finished when readers would say things like, I hated your mother on this page and I loved <laughs> you. And I loved you on this page and hated your mother. And then I thought, okay, yes. done. Yeah. <laughs> done. You know, you know what I loved, really loved about your book was the concept of the reconciliation. And I know, you know, Zara and I are mother and daughter, as you know, and we, we have a history of intergenerational trauma that has affected, we can tell how it's affected. The, I don't know if you know this, but my mom was a Holocaust survivor. And um, there's just a lot of intergenerational trauma that we've carried, you know, has been passed down. And we've had our times of real struggle and difficulty. So there was one piece, if I may read it, that I loved so much um, because it reminded me of Zara and I, and it reminded oh. me of how part of our healing and this show represents that healing because it, it even started at a time where we were really struggling. We could barely, you know, have a conversation like you were saying before more than five minutes without, you know, just boiling up. So the show has been a very healing process for us. So it's such a gift to talk about this today. So this was a section in your book and you were talking about reconciliation and you say, when people ask, how did you two reconcile? I tell them the most important thing is that we both really wanted to. It was a practice, choice by choice, interaction by interaction. We broke old habits and established new ones. I could feel it in that place inside that always knows the truth. Our reconciliation was no longer a work in progress. It was a work of art. It didn't mean we wouldn't fight. It meant we could fight. Mm. That's beautiful. So I'm just moved reading it. It's just, mm. you know, reconciliation. Because yeah. a mother, a mother is such a profound part of our life. I mean, like we were talking about your sister in the womb, you know, how you felt. As a mother, you carry this magnificent, you know, adult human. And yet you'd say, it's so complex why you struggle, you know. But mothers and daughters are, I think you had another line in, in, in your book, you know, like a mother is easy to hate. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that, right? It's like the most you know, the most easy person around to hate because, and I wonder if part of that is um, the depth, the core of the love too. Mm -hmm. I also think it's, it's like, I, I reflect a lot when I think about my children, my children are 26, my daughter's 26. I have a son who's 30 and a son who's 44. And I, I that they, they'll never be in the same generation I am. Like there's no way my kids can really understand what I'm going through right now as I think about, like, can I retire? What is the rest of my life going to be? I don't want to live the way I'm living anymore. I'm afraid of the future. I mean, like, mm. I don't feel like they really can understand that in a way I can't really understand them. And it's no. like, they'll understand me when they're this age. Yeah. Uh, but I'll be gone, you know, and, and just how we, you know, there is a generation gap. I mean, it is, it's such a cliche, but it's so real. Um, I think when I look back, one of the biggest mistakes I made was not to try to understand more what Zara's generation was. And now I really do try to take that time to understand how she views things, how she sees things. Um, and I, I think that's part of how we, you know, and she also does the same with me. You know, she really is interested in some of the struggles that I go through as a, I'm about your age you know, so some of the struggles that I go through. So I think that's how we're, you know, um, sh shortening that distance of the generation. My, my daughter schooled me on something uh, about four or five years ago. She, she, she was living in the Middle East, so she was really far away. And um, we were talking on WhatsApp, you know, which is like such a, a godsend, WhatsApp. So we were yeah. having a phone call on WhatsApp. And she said, uh, she said, you know, mom, she said, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. She goes, you know, every time I call you, you try to extend the phone call. 
And every time I text you about anything, I write a line and you send back three paragraphs. And she <laughs> said, you know, when you do that, it makes me not want to reach out to you. That was fantastic. I mean, it was mm -hmm. like such a great thing. Just the other, like two nights ago, she called. She's living in Seattle now. We're, we're planning to meet on a camping trip. And she, we're going on and on and on and on. And I said, you know, I have other things to do. I've got to go. And then I just <laughs> and I said, see, your lessons worked. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, just that, learning how to relate to people with different kind of attachment styles and what works and, and what doesn't work. You know, as someone who doesn't have children, um, I think a lot about, but, you know, I'm, I'm 39 and I st still think about having kids and I think about my own relationship with Bobby and, and my dad and the things that, like, I resented or felt really bad about my childhood or that were hurtful. And then I come to a place where it's just, and I mean, this isn't a new thought necessarily, but it's worth mentioning, I think, of that I am just like a person, right? I'm a person who goes through my day with a range of emotions, with a, a year that has really good months and bad months sometimes. And I am allowed, essentially, within reason, of course, of wanting to maintain healthy relationships with others and myself to kind of act how I want. You know what I mean? And that has minimal effect because I don't have somebody who I'm teaching to be a human, you know, and who's like I, everything I do, the imprint is also onto them. And I think that without like a ton of thought about what it means to be a parent, it's very easy to like mess up. And if you're not someone who was in a place of really being like super conscious about that. And even if you are, right, I can, even if you my, are, even if you are right. Mm -hmm. My empathy really extends when I try to like expand my mind past my own personal pain or things that happen to like, wow, like it's very hard to be a person and imagine also dealing with the pain and hardships of being a regular human and having to be so conscious about how your decision-making, everything you say and do, the imprint it leaves on another person. So I think that's a lot. And I think um, it's good to leave room for that and um, to give grace for that when we can. Of course, there's many exceptions and many reasons to actually just real, feel legitimately hurt by other people's actions. But that must be very hard. And as parents, I wonder what you guys think about that. Well, I mean, as a therapist, I don't know how many times a day I say, you know, you're doing the best you can, you know, to always remind yourself, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't always do better. And I think feedback, um, like Laura was talking about with her daughter, the feedback she gave is, you know, when you can listen to feedback and have the humility to be able to listen to feedback. I think for me that the biggest challenge was uh, learning to apologize mm. because I, my first knee-jerk reaction is, I didn't do it. <laughs> and I know right. that's my childhood. I didn't do it. Like, whatever <laughs> yeah. it is, I didn't do it. Not me, you know? Sure. Yeah. It's like denial immediately. Um, or no, my first response is no, that won't work. <laughs> you know? right. And it, yeah. I, it's become a joke, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's a joke and not uh, <laughs> so burdensome. But And then I have to, like, train myself to say yes or why not. And I'm, when my kids were little, they'd say, like, can we do this? Can we do that? Whatever it was. Could we eat this? Could we? And my first thing would be no. And then I would immediately be like, okay, how could we make this work? But that that immediate impulse was was no, and I didn't do it. And so I've been learning to apologize. Mm -hmm. you no, know, and to come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry, I did do that. Or, you know, and it's been challenging. Yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. <laughs> Yeah. in decades that's, that's um, beautiful yeah you know one other um thing that i think is important to say is that you know your book describes how you cared for your mother during her um alzheimer's and you know her aging her decline i think it's an important subject to talk about because there's so many people that come to that point where they're caring for parents where they had difficult relationships and is there anything that you think would be helpful to share now um to our listeners about that process of what that was like to um, even knowing you had a difficult relationship to still be able to care for her with love and care and attention and time. Yeah. I think the first thing I want to say is I don't think it's the right path for everyone. You know, I, I think there are absolutely situations where a parent, if we're thinking about parents and children, I mean, it could be a sibling or whatever, but mm -hmm. let's say parents and children where the parent 
was or is so toxic um, that it would be psychologically devastating for the adult child to care for that person. Um, they, they could possibly, you know, arrange care elsewhere and help in some way. But sometimes someone has severed that bond by their behavior and they don't, no one deserves or no one is owed a child taking care of them. So I want to say that first, because I think the first thing is that it needs to be a choice. So I made the choice that I, it's something I wanted to do, even though I felt incredible ambivalence and fear about entering into that. And my mother really thrust it on me. I mean, the every book has an inciting incident, and the inciting incident in this story is that my mother calls me and, and announces, I'm moving across the country to live in your town for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I, I just didn't know if I could function around her without 3,000 miles distance between us. And yet I, I another part of me was just kind of secretly longing, like maybe we could heal this relationship the rest of the way before she dies. So mm. part of me really wanted to say yes. And a lot of me was like just freaked out and freaking out about the whole thing. Um, I think in terms of, I, I there were certain boundaries I had to set. Like I never had my mother live in my house. I, I think both of us knew that that would never work. It was just too close, too intimate for me to be in that position. So she lived independently. I managed her care. And then eventually she lived in assisted living. And and it's interesting because it got to the point where it felt like I described it as like growing a new umbilical cord between us because I, even though I had a spouse, I, I, I was in the sandwich generation. I had two teenagers at home and a mother with dementia. And it, I was always stretched thin and working full time and running a business. And it was incredibly difficult and stressful. But I every day I would go see her, you know, even if it was just for 20 minutes or half an hour, or an hour. And I, I just felt like pulled to her. She was the one I was thinking about, you know, when I woke up in the morning and before I went Ooh. to bed at night. And it, there was a certain incredible tenderness and responsibility, but also challenge and I, there was a there's a scene in the book where I scream at her, you know, I really lose it one day as a caregiver. I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, and then the thing that was so incredibly painful about that is she didn't remember it. Mm. And I, I had to had to really face myself that everyone thought I was the best daughter in the whole world and I wish I had a daughter like you, you know, things like that. And and yet I realized I could get away with anything. I suddenly understood elder <laughs> abuse. Right. Yeah. I really got why it happens, mm. uh, how you could lose control like that, how incredibly difficult it is to be a caregiver, how little support there is for it. Um, and also that she didn't remember what I had done the next day. So it was a huge, and that I did, you know, I, I had already gotten back into therapy when she moved out here. I knew I needed help, but I, that drove me to go to this. There was a caregiver resource center mm -hmm. um, in Santa Cruz. And I went there and I, I got another I got more help. I joined a support group and, you know, I just, I, I, first I confessed what I had done, but then I also just got more help. I, I realized mm -hmm. I needed more support yeah. um, than I had. And um, I, I wanted to write about that because I think uh, people feel incredible shame when that sort of thing happens. And yet it happens all the time. And it is, I mean, that's the value and really kind of owning up to our own stuff and talking about it is that it does help other people not feel shame. And that's so valuable and so important. And it is so hard. Another thing that was so, I guess, odd or was that my mother changed so much when she had dementia. You know, she had been this incredible force of nature and force mm. of will and so emotionally intense and volatile and I had always like numb myself out around her because she just took up all the psychic emotional space. But when she had dementia, she started turning really sweet and passive. Mm -hmm. And I would walk in to see her and she would be like, you're the best daughter in the whole world. And then she would say really funny things. Like she would say, you and Karen have done such a great job with those kids. Who says lesbians shouldn't have children? <laughs> and she was uh, funny and she was, uh, um, she was so loving. And when I walked in, it was so clear that I was the most important, mm. was the most important moment of her day. And I would both be touched by that. And I would also be like, when can I get out of here? Ooh. So it's just, it's, it's such a complex it is. caregiver is so complex, especially with that kind of history. Um, 
And I think one thing I liked, and this is kind of hard to admit, is I liked having the control. Mm-hmm. You know, she had had control over me for so much of my mm-hmm. life, and suddenly, mm-hmm. right. I was- I had I was her power of attorney. I was making yes. medical decisions. I yeah. decided where she lived. I had I had control over her life, and yeah. there was. I think that's where I realized I didn't want to abuse that control. Right, that's very honest. Yeah. You know, like I could have, I I could, like I said, I could have gotten away with whatever. You know, and I yeah, I wanted to be also responsive to everything she had told me over the years of what she wanted, and mm-hmm. yet it had changed. Like like she had said. If I ever have to be in a walker or wheelchair, just take me out back and shoot me. <laughs> that all the time. And then at one point she was in a, a wheelchair. She was using a walker and she still seemed to be enjoying her life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it made me realize that the bar of what's acceptable changes as people age yes. yeah. and you don't really know That's what it's sure. going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was just such a wonderful time to spend with you. I wish we could talk all day. Um, so you're so interesting and just, it's been amazing. Um, at the end of every one of these uh, episodes, we always like to ask our guests the same question. It's interesting because the, the responses are always so different. Um, but if you could have told your young self in kind of the center of some of these traumatic moments of your life, wherever those kind of may be for you specifically, if you could have given your younger self one piece of advice, knowing all the things you know today and done the healing and kind of some of the working through this, um, do you have a piece of advice for that person? Oh boy. Um, you're going to be okay. I think that's what I needed to hear you're going to, you're going to make it and you're going to be okay. And you will have a good life. Cause I, I didn't even think I would survive, you know, past 30 or whatever, you know, I just, that's, that's what I needed to hear. I, I did not believe in myself at all. I was so shattered. Mm. It's, that's very, very powerful. And I think, yeah, that's something I, I can definitely relate to. And it's something that is so important to kind of, here sometimes and just to tell ourselves still right even when yeah. we're in hard times Life's you're gonna be okay right and it's it's usually always true you know but it's so hard to know sometimes we need to play bob marley you know everything's <laughs> gonna be okay love that song yeah. well the only um, thing we do at the end of uh, um, a processing session is try to think about if we were to have a meal right now which we would love to do with you we'll even yeah. picture that big kitchen that you were talking about before <laughs> And we could each prepare something that had a story to it that we would like to share with each other today. Um, what would our meal look like? Uh, you mean, I, I could only talk about my part. Yeah, yeah. What would you bring? Yeah, your part. Yeah. What would you bring? Um, God, what would I bring? There's so many possibilities. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the dish I would bring, but I don't know that I have a story. It doesn't have to have a story. Maybe you just feel like eating it right now. I would, share I would it with probably us. bring, um, I don't know, do you eat meat? Yeah, we'll eat meat. Yeah. I would probably bring a baked lemon chicken. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I think that recipe was in, it, it, I was cooking it in my kitchen yeah. at one point in the memoir. But Yes, I saw that. It looked, love, it looked fantastic. We take a chicken or two, if it's more than a few people, two chickens in a giant pot that has a really tight fitting lid and you take a a lemon and you roll it on a table to loosen the pulp and then Mm -hmm. stab it with a knife, like a steak knife about 20 times and then stuff the lemon inside the the chicken Mm -hmm. and then put it in that pot and then take uh, maybe 20 cloves of garlic, like as much garlic as until you get sick. We're with you, lemon and garlic. (laughs) And you smear it all over, a little olive oil on the surface of the bird and then a little salt and pepper and then cover it with this garlic um, and then surround it with root vegetables like cut up parsnips and rutabaga and um, sweet potatoes and onions, usually red onions I use, and then some kind of tart apple like um, Granny Smith apple mm-hmm. lots of apple because the apple makes it really mm. sweet and, and dissolved right, of course and then, maybe oh, carrots. those i think that's usually the the one and then prunes like, oh yeah. yeah a handful or two of prunes and then you cover all of that with sliced lemons on the top <laughs> of the chicken and then God. you cook it at 325 um a low a lower oven for probably mm. two hours to if there's more mm. than one chicken it has to cook longer 
Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, you take off the lid and let it brown on the top. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. the chicken should be completely falling apart. Oh my God, that sounds so good. And the good. vegetables in the sauce are sweet. And, it sounds fantastic. And then serve it with a basmati rice. Ah, oh, excellent. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's my dish. All right. So, Zara, what are you going to add to that? Well, I want to go last. Oh, 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 oh. Well, I was, I was going to make stuffed cabbage because that's in our heritage, too. And when you told that story before about stuffed cabbage, I had the same little stool that you had because <laughs> I grew up in the 50s, the same little stool. And my mother, who was Hungarian, would prepare the cabbage and make, get the cabbage ready. So I was going to make stuffed cabbage, but it doesn't, I guess we could have that along with that. But I, maybe I could make cabbage soup. Oh. Because another, my father was Russian and there we made cabbage soup. And um, it could be eaten hot or cold, but it's a sweet and sour kind of a thing. and would go great with your chicken. So I think I'll make cabbage soup with a dollop of sour cream on it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to round out this meal. I want to go last because I'm going to bring the dessert, um, which would be my mom's apple strudel, which is one of the quintessential. There's probably about five things that Bobby makes that are so Bobby, right? They're just (laughs) classically her for so many reasons. And her apple strudel not only is one of those, but it's definitely the one that goes kind of best with, I think, this meal. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and just kind of thinking about the things, um, those like really rich food memories with family, obviously. The apple strudel, Bobby, you know this, is one of the, the deepest ones. So that would be my dish. And this sounds like a fabulous meal, and I wish we could eat it right now because I'm very hungry. <laughs> um, so Laura, tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, where they can find your work, where they can buy your book, upcoming things that they can join, workshops, whatever you have going on. Let's hear about it. Okay, so um, the best way to reach me is through my website, which is lauradavis.net, just lauradavis.net. And you could read there the first five chapters of The Burning Light of Two Stars and see if you you know, want to keep going. People say they get hooked and they can't That's stop right. reading it. But uh, anyway, the first five chapters are posted there and you could read them. Um, and I teach writing workshops uh, online. Um, and also all over the world. Um, I just took a group to Tuscany mm. and um, next year I'm going to take a group to Bali back. I've gone there five times. I'm going back for the first time in six years and it's going to be a trip that's focused on um, Balinese spirituality and we're going to visit a lot of healers mm. and then writing will be the component that will help people integrate their experience and we're going to three different regions of Bali doing a lot of hiking. It's a really off-roads kind of trip, way out of the main tourist areas. And I'm very excited about that. Um, The other thing I have coming up right away is actually a workshop on grief. It's called Writing as a Pathway Through Grief, Loss, Uncertainty, and Change. And it would be appropriate for anyone who's in, you know, a deep life transition, like I am right now, or someone who is grieving the loss of a person or an identity or retiring or dealing with empty nest or what do I want to do next in my life? It's, it's an incredible week-long retreat that is an opportunity to dive really deep and find clarity to grieve or let go of things in community and to come away with a feeling of really deep connection and sense of direction of what's next. And that's coming up just uh, a m- little more than a month from now. That'll be in Northern California, where I live, mm. at a really gorgeous retreat center in the mountains with redwood trees all around. Mm, wow. And people could learn about that also at lauradavis.net. Amazing. Well, thank you, Laura. This was just such a beautiful time to spend with you. I feel like I learned so much um, about writing, honestly, from reading your book and from spending time with you and um it's honestly been helpful <laughs> to me in my own writing process just to absorb what an amazing writer you are and how you write about grief and food and integrate that. And uh, it was just mm-hmm. wonderful to speak with you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was wonderful. And thank you. On behalf of so many people out there, you've helped so many people through the years on, in so many different ways. And, you know, as a professional, I've I've recommended your book to hundreds of people um, into, who have experienced um, abuse. And, um, and now we've learned other aspects of you and we love you. And thank yes. you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, I, I totally enjoyed it. I, and I love the mother daughter aspect of your show. Mm-hmm. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. We will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Be well. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.